Good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible, please open it up to uh, Romans 8 and also Mark 1. Romans 8 and Mark 1. I don't have to state the obvious that it's warm tonight, so if you just, like, fall asleep, I will not be offended. (laughs) If I fall asleep, don't be offended. So um, we're in a series called The Empowering Presence, and it's an in-depth series on the Holy Spirit. And I think this series, a series like this, is so needed for a few different reasons. One, we tend to divide into camps of churches that are either very serious about the Bible and other churches that are very serious about the stuff of the Spirit. I think this is really sad. They're always meant to go together. It's Spirit and truth. Whenever um, in the ministry of Jesus, both those things coexisted. It was theology, who God was, and experienced faith. And this is our series, in this series, our attempt is to do both of these things, to hold up the theology of the Spirit, and at the same time, a weight on the Spirit for the stuff He brings for the Christian life and for mission. Another reason why a series like this is important is that many of us have a pieced together understanding of the Holy Spirit. It might have been surprising to you to hear last week that the Holy Spirit is a person and not an energy or a force. And when we say that we desire more of the Spirit, we're not saying that we want more force or more power. We, we, we ask for more of the Spirit in the same way that you would ask for more of someone else, like more of them. We want more intimacy, more knowledge uh, into what makes them them, more time with them, etc. So when we ask for more of the Spirit, which we will get more into even next week, we're not asking for more force, but we're asking for more relationship, more of the person of God. And this is all really, really important stuff. And tonight, What I'd like to talk about is the Holy Spirit's role in our identity. And this is more important than you think it is. Because this is actually how Jesus began his ministry. By hearing who he was before God by the power of the Spirit. So if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 1 verse 9. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. God, thank you for this evening. I pray that we would all come under the freedom that that your Spirit brings, God. And not a freedom defined by what we think about freedom as Americans, meaning we're free to do whatever we want whenever we want to, but the freedom that constrains us to, do the, to choose the best, the right thing, the good thing, the holy thing. So Holy Spirit, send your holiness to our church as well. I also want to pray, God, that you would, by your Spirit, just remove fear. I know a lot of us are just a little, a little fearful in this series. Um, I think it's because a lot of us really like control. And if you're saying, Lord, that you give us your spirit and then that spirit starts pushing against all our control mechanisms in life, that can be a scary thing. And so, Lord, in your, in your, in your, in your perfect way, we just spell fear. Dispel it, God. Remove it. And may we be open to your spirit. And, Lord, I ask for your help in communicating these things. You know how much I care about this topic, and I ask God that you would help me to communicate it um, well. But I know I only can communicate it so well. I don't don't know how well. But your spirit can go way beyond my words. So do that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been in, in ministry for about a little over 20 years, and as a, as a minister, I would say the most, most of our misery 
and anxiety. And, I, and I've been ministering to the same kind of people, age group, my entire ministry life. Like when I started ministry, all of you guys were like in junior high, and that's when I started. It feels like I kind of grew up with you. And, I, and then I planted a church with a bunch of y'all. Like that's kind of how it went down. And as I've been ministering to your people group for about 20 years now, I would say that most of our misery and our anxiety comes from trying to prove ourselves to the world. It comes from trying to say to the world that I am enough and that I'm worthy of love. And no matter how much our society and our culture tries to be helpful in telling us that we're worthy of love, and it does a whole lot of that with commercials and advertising and trying to sell you stuff and putting movies out that say you're worthy of love, this is actually the hardest thing to truly believe about ourselves, that we are worthy of love. So we try to, we move to a city like, city like San Francisco and become very upwardly mobile. We move to a city like SF, we take another job, we start seeing a different person, we change gyms, we change the way we dress, we lose a few pounds, we listen to a new trending podcast, all hoping that some person or something or some event will come along and give us that final feeling of inner well-being that we so deeply desire. And this is what drives us in our careers most of the time. We want to be worthy of love and we try to get there by our performance. Now imagine if you were really honest in a job interview and you said what you really wanted why you really wanted this very attractive job in this very attractive city and you wanted to get paid a little bit more than they're offering you, why you really want all those things is because you want something to prove to you that you're worthy of love and this job might just be that thing. What if we were really honest? We also do this in relationships. We want, us, we want someone to tell us that we are worthy of love. We want someone to tell us that we are enough, that we are attractive physically or emotionally attractive, that someone's attracted to us. We want someone to come along and say, yes, you are enough. And a lot of us take this further and want someone to come along and say, you are enough. Will you marry me? See, proving ourselves worthy of love is indeed one of the, the great sources of our misery and our pain and our agony. Because as most of us go along waiting for that mysterious moment to happen, we're, we're always anxious and restless. We're always lustful and angry. We're never really satisfied. But, and, and, this, and this, this is totally honest. On one hand, the misery that this stage of life causes can seem like a very good thing. Because the misery that we all have is very useful and helpful to one, in one sense. The misery that we all feel helps us become successful people. Because successful people are always filled with compulsiveness. This drive, this inner thing that they need to quench, this, this, this longing to be loved and accepted, it launches the careers of people like Robin Williams and Jim Carrey. And I say those two people because I just watched documentaries about both of them. And this is what they highlighted as driving them. This is what, we, we all know the stories, we have the biography, we know this, is, this drives us. This, that like inner restlessness might have been the very thing that brought you to San Francisco. It's the very thing that makes you want to start that next thing or that new company. It's this drive that we have. And the reason, you know, and when we celebrate people like actors and musicians and start whatever, we, we celebrate these people as people that are driven. All this means is that our society has found a way to celebrate and pay a lot of money to people who will publicly try to find meaning and seek to be loved through acting or comedy or music and maybe even a job. But we have all the data. We have all the documentaries. We have all the stories. It never works out. You never hear the story of, I wanted to make my, 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 my name in the world, so I moved to Hollywood, and it was, it was everything I wanted. 
It was perfect. I made my name and I was content. I was happy. I was at peace with myself. It was awesome. Or I moved to San Francisco and I made a million dollars, my first million dollars. And you know what? I have inner peace now. I, I did it. I, start, I had to start. I, I did it. I did it all. I have this inner peace. I did everything I wanted to do in life. I'm so content now. That, that's, never the, that's not the storyline. What happens is it never works and the people actually never find the love they long for. And oftentimes it only destroys them when they do find success. See, what we all long for as humans happens right here in Mark chapter 1 at the bank of the Jordan River in first century Israel. Jesus is beginning his public career, but he doesn't begin in the restless longing to prove himself to the world that he's worthy of love. Something else actually happens. Jesus steps into the Jordan River. His cousin John the Baptist is baptizing people. Jesus gets in line to be baptized, and when Jesus comes up next, John says, why do you want to be baptized? You have no need to be baptized. This here is a baptism of repentance. Jesus nods and says, regardless, I have to do this. So John plunges Jesus into the water, and when Jesus emerges, we find these words. Mark chapter 1, verse 10, you, you're there in your Bibles. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, so John plunges him in the water. As Jesus comes up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Like a, it wasn't a dove. It wasn't like a pigeon, like just trying to attack him. It was like a dove. So a spirit is coming down on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. See, publicly and poetically, the father declares his love for his son, which also gives Jesus an identity. Here the love of God is poured out on Jesus. And Jesus is given an identity that will frame the rest of his earthly life and the rest of his work in ministry. And he doesn't earn it. He doesn't, he hasn't really done anything at this point. If you read your Bibles, it's like he was born and then he had a, like a thing when he was 12 and then that's it. And then this happens. He hasn't really done anything. He hasn't even began his ministry. He hasn't died on the cross. He hasn't cast out a single demon. He hasn't healed a single person. But this identity is given to him. Love is given to him. Acceptance is given to him. And identity are all a gift from the Father. And then Jesus lives from this place, not for this place. He lives from the place of being the beloved of God, not for it. He didn't try to earn it. He just received it and accepted it. But the question that's interesting to me is how the Father makes known his love for Jesus. How does the Father, when the Father wants to pour his love out on Jesus, when the Father wants to give Jesus an identity, how is it mediated? And if Jesus is our model, how is the love of God brought into our lives? How is our identity made true about us? And the answer is this. You might not have guessed this answer. The answer is by the Holy Spirit. You guys knew that was coming. Of course you did. The answer is this. How did Jesus receive the love of the Father? How did the Father send his love to Jesus? And the answer is by the Spirit. Look at what it says in, in, in Mark, Mark 1. It says the Spirit was descending on him. This is the Bible's way of saying that Jesus was receiving all of this by the Spirit. The Spirit was coming upon Jesus and mediating the Father's love and empowers the Son by giving his Son an identity. This is all done by the Spirit. Now, if you don't believe me, you're like, well, I don't know if that's there. Look at Romans 5.5. 5. 
Paul says in Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How does God mediate his love to us? How does he make his love known to us and felt to us and experienced? How? By the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one who mediates the love of God to us. Now I can say to you, God loves you. And you might be like, cool, thank you for that. That feels good, thanks. Or you might say, yeah, I know God loves me. I've read that. I've read that book. I've read the book of the Bible. I've read this stuff. I I know God loves me. Cool. Or you actually might say, you know what? Go to hell. My life does not feel like God loves me at all. This world does not feel like God is loving anyone at all. See, to say that God loves you and to say that God loves you so much that while you were still a rebellious sinner denying God's love, he sent his son to die for you, you might just be like, okay, fine, that's great. You're a pastor. You're supposed to say that kind of stuff. And you might even know that in your mind. You might know that up here. Like in your mind, you're very, very cerebral. You know, okay, God loves me. But how do we experience that love? How are you strangely warmed by that love? How do you like know like deep, deep down that God loves you? See, he wants you to know that he, he has love for you like a father or a mother loves their child. See, I'm not, I'm not a dad yet in the sense that I can hold my baby girl and hug her and kiss her. I'm, it's close. January 25th, everyone. It's coming. But the, okay, yes, uh, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> the, closest I get, the closest I get right now is that I'm a, I'm a dog father. I'm a, I'm a new puppy parent to Prince. Uh, we have a little doodle prince. Uh, this is him. Oh my gosh. Okay, remove it. I can't. I didn't even show this to morning service because the screen was too big and I just could not put him up that, that big. But night service, you guys get it. You guys get prince. This is him. Okay. Okay, Jason, remove it now. It's too much. Seriously. Okay, I'm going to be honest. This is like the first time I'm really feeling all the dad feels in a real sense in my life. This is strange because it's a dog. I think it's just like a precursor to my, to my baby girl. And it's destroying me in the best ways. Like, I have this deep dad-parent-like affection for him. Sometimes I call him, I hold him, and I call him my son, which seems strange saying that right now, but in the moment, it feels so right. Like, I'm just holding him like, hi, son. Like, I'm just, like, kissing. I don't know. It's just this past week, we had an early morning elder meeting at my house, and when Ash and Prince woke up, they came upstairs, and I see Prince, and he walks up to me, and I, I pick him up. And I'm right in the middle, I'm like talking to the elders, I'm right in the middle of this like really important point. I'm, I'm making this point and I'm like trying to get like just this stuff that's like been burning on my heart and I'm sharing this with them. But Prince comes in right in the middle of the point and I just stop, I grab him and I pick him up and I like, good morning. And I'm kissing him, he's looking at my face. And I'm like, oh, and I look over at Tark. Tark's like, dang, like what? <laughs> it's gotten into you. And then Kev is sitting right next to me and Kev's like, bro, are you gonna need a minute? And I'm like, yes, I'm going to need a minute. I'm going to need, like, a couple minutes. Like, if this is that, like, that weird, strange thing that I feel towards my, this dog, this dog, it's a dog. And you're like, you're crazy. I, I know I'm crazy. I won't even, I won't deny that. Imagine that, that, that love, infinite, that, that affection all the time. Imagine that. That's God's love for us, is affection, is commitment, is protection. There's even anger that's a part of that love. Jesus actually says, he has, 
He says that if, if you being evil know how to love your children and give them good gifts, you're evil in the sense that you're kind of broken and you do, you do evil things. Even though you are evil and you're a broken human being, you still know how to ha- pour out affection to, par- to your kids. You even know how to pour out affection to your puppies. How much more does the Father love you and give you the Spirit? Now, those two things are very connected. Because I think my point, what I want to say is the way that God makes His love known to us is by giving us the Spirit. God knows how to give good gifts. He knows how to pour His love into your life. And the way He does that is by giving us the Spirit. And this is why this is a big deal. Because God's love is incompatible with us. I, I know you might, you grew up, you grew up where everyone like got a participation ribbon. So, you, I mean, this is like you, everyone loves you. You grew up, everyone loving you. I, I get it. And you heard that God loves you. But you, you have to understand that God's love is actually incompatible with us. We, and this is why, we distort God's love. We turn God's love into things like politics. We confuse God's love. We don't understand his love. We don't understand his anger at a world gone wrong. We don't understand his purposes. We don't understand how his love is manifested in wanting the world to move in a certain way and us live under his idea of flourishing, not our own idea of flourishing. God loves us madly, insanely, but we're broken. God's love is incompatible with us. We don't understand his love. But a spirit, his spirit mediates his, the spirit is like Bluetooth. This is stupid, but I'm just going to go with it. He takes two, two things that are incompatible and he makes them compatible. He takes the love of God, which we can't comprehend, we don't understand. You might have been in church for, for such a long time and you keep hearing and hearing that God loves you. And then one day it clicks for you. One day it snaps in your heart and you realize that God loves you. One day you realize that Jesus is Lord. Something happens. The Holy Spirit is that connection that mediates the love of God that we can't really comprehend or get, and he mediates it to us. He's the one who makes the connection real for us. God's love is mediated to us in a real way by the Spirit. So when the Father wanted to love the Son and say, I love you, and I accept you, and I'm so pleased by you, and you're my Son, what he did was he sent the Spirit, and the Spirit mediated his love. And Jesus at that moment not just knew, and not just heard the voice, but felt the voice. I am God's son. I'm loved, and God's pleased with me. Before I've done anything, I don't have to earn this. The way the Father does that right now is by his Spirit. See, the Spirit initiates two primary relationships focused on two different cries, and they are this. Jesus is Lord and Abba Father. What the Spirit does in us is He puts these two cries in our heart, things that we might have heard forever, but they become real to us. The first one is Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is one day something clicks where you have heard the gospel, you've heard about Jesus for months or years, or how, but one day it clicks for you, and you're like, Jesus is Lord. That's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God is saying, Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is your Savior. Repent and turn to Christ. That is the Spirit. The Spirit also does this. He puts the cry in us that God is our Father. 
Because you are sons, Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Papa, Papi, Daddy. It's this intimate relationship. The spirit is the one who makes these confessions real. I saw this happen last week. Both of these things happened last week, last Sunday. I saw the Holy Spirit lead people to faith in Christ for the first time. People saying from the depths of their being that Jesus is Lord for the very first time I saw that last week. And I saw people who for the first time experienced the intimacy of the Father by the Spirit. One person in particular who was close to leaving Christianity because it wasn't connecting to their heart. It was all in their mind and it wasn't, their heart was not on fire and they were almost like, this is too hard, I can't do this, I, I, I'm, I think I'm walking away. And this, they, they came forward last week and they said something happened with the Spirit of God like just mediated the love of God and it was real and that person was filled with joy they walked into their community group and they're like what is different about what's so different and, and this person told the story the, the spirit of God this is what the spirit does this is the stuff the spirit does see I was always taught that the spirit of God is given to me so that when the father looks at me he only sees Jesus and doesn't see me listen The Spirit of God lives in you so that Christ's righteous record is given to you. Yes. But the Spirit is not given so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he only sees Jesus. That's not, that's not how it works. Actually, the Spirit is given to you because how much he loves you. He loves you so much that he gives you his Spirit so that you know how much he loves you, so that he lives inside of you. In the same way in the Old Testament that God lived in t that temple, by grace. God doesn't live in a temple, but he, he, he made him, he allowed himself to live in a temple for Israel's sake. He now lives in us. That's how, this is how God loves us. The Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, and we can know that we are children of God. This is identity so that we can have an identity. This is what Romans 8 says. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. I just feel like I should say this right there. I leave that scripture up. If you've been afraid during this series, like I'm, a, I'm kind of afraid of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you haven't verbalized it like that, but there's a sense of that. That is not the spirit of God. That is not. The spirit does not allow you or make you or cause you to live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Now, this is such a beautiful text. Maybe uh, we taught you guys a few weeks ago how to do Lectio Divina. Maybe you should write this verse down, do some Lectio through it this next, this next week. This is a profound, profound text. Now, there's a lot of beauty in this text, but I don't want you, I, I do want to address something that I'm sure is in this room right now. And it's the language of God as Father and we are sons. For many of my sisters in here, what's been in our news these past couple of weeks have stirred up and possibly triggered some stuff in you where the last thing you want to hear at church is the male language of God and the male language of sonship. 
And I hear that, and I'll, to be honest with you, I feel that in this text as well. And I also think it would be very smart of the enemy, Satan, to distract us from the beauty of what God has for us tonight by tripping us up on this stuff. So let me say by way of reminder of what I said last week, God is neither male nor female. God is beyond gender. And beyond our limited language, God is not bound by our language. We kind of have two categories. We don't have a category for a being that's other than male and female. And we don't have um, personal pronouns that are, that are beyond he and she. God is beyond gender. So when we say God is father, it has attached to it parental love and care and origin as creator. What is detached from that is any maleness. One writer writing on the Trinity says this, God is not male, God is not female. God is not a blend of both. God transcends sexuality. So language about God as the Father and the Son was always understood by commentators, he's saying, and scholars, when applied to God in such a way as to strip away any literal male dimension of it, this much is undisputed. So when you hear Father, I want you to hear that we don't, we don't have language beyond. We, hear, we, we see God as loving, caring parent. We see God as, as our, the one that we submit to and we give our lives to, the one who loves us with, with love because he's our, he's our maker, creator, and redeemer. Now, about the fact that we are sons of God, this is actually adoption language, and it actually subverts patriarchy. This is kind of cool in a very gospel way, not a, this is a politically cool thing. This is just a gospel thing, okay? This is just the Bible, straight gospel. It would be a tragedy to hear this scripture and think in terms of sexism. Oh my gosh, I'm not a son of God. I'm a, I'm a daughter of God. Let's just make this daughters of God. No, it's actually there for a reason. Let, let me tell you. This, what this is teaching is the Bible is trying not, to, not trying to make women into men here any more than saying that men being the bride of Christ are trying to make us women. It's about status, in Roman era, the firstborn had all the status, unless the firstborn son had all the status in, 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 in the Roman era, which is the, the context of, of Romans. In the Roman era, the firstborn son had all the status, unless that family chose to adopt. And whenever that family adopted, all of the status of the firstborn son went to this adopted son. And the reason why Romans had this law is that, you know, we're not going to leave this up to genetics. We might have a son, and he might be just, like, not the guy we want to run the family stuff. He might just grow up to be just an idiot, right? So we're like, we're going to adopt, and when we adopt this son, and this happened all, like, all the Caesars were, went under, like, they would, they would, their heir would not be their firstborn son often. It would be an adopted cousin who was brought in, like, you're taking the family line. You're taking, and that's what would happen. And so they would grab someone who they deemed worthy, and they would make that person the adopted son. And that person gets all the rights and all the privileges, and they were adopted as sons. And what Paul is saying is that this is exactly what is happening by the Spirit. We become firstborn sons of God by way of status. We all do. Men, women, girls, boys, we all become the ones who receive all the status of God's children, and we get all of God's inheritance now. This is actually very subversive of Paul to write this. And the ultimate evidence of this sonship is the use of God, of, of, of Jesus's own address of the Father, when Jesus calls the Father Abba. See, Jesus calls 
God, Papa, Papi, Daddy. This is intimacy. See, God is not addressed like this in the Old Testament. God is Adonai, God is Yahweh. Even there were uh, religious Jews that didn't even want to use those names because we, they didn't want to say them wrong, so they would use the word Hashem to refer to God, meaning the name. It's just Hashem. It's just the name. We're not going to say Adonai. We're not going to say Yahweh because we might say those names wrong. If we say the name wrong, we might use them in vain. We're not going to do that. God is so holy, so to be revered, he is just Hashem. Jesus changed that. He called, he, when he, he went to pray, he said, Papi. That's how he prayed to God. Daddy. Abba. Now that may, might be hard. This, again, this text can be very weird for a lot of us because maybe as you think of God as Father, you may have a father in your life that brings up more trauma than happy feelings. When I say, God is your daddy, you're like, I don't, no, don't want to think about that. When Jesus calls God Abba Father, he wants you to know what kind of father God is. So he has this parable in Luke 15, we know it as the prodigal son. And this is how Jesus wants us to, to know about the father. He's like, this, this, is the f- this, is, this is who Abba is. Abba's like this. The story goes, and you might have heard it, the son, got, the, this father has two sons. The younger son wants it all. He wants all of his inheritance while his dad is still alive, which basically means, dad, I wish you were dead. And the dad, the father says, yes, okay, here, have it. Do what you're going to do. The son leaves, despises dad, leaves, spends it all, wastes it all, ruins it all, spends it all on the stuff that you would spend when you're just like bitter at your dad. He's, he ruins his entire life. He doesn't take the money and invest it. He just goes and lives lavishly, wildly. He finally comes to his senses, and he was literally waking up eating with pigs. And if you were a first-century Jew, that's, that's not kosher at all, like literally not kosher. And he comes to his senses, and he says, if I was a servant in my dad's house, I would eat better than this. At least I won't starve to death. You know what I'll do is I'll go home, and I'll tell my dad, I just want to be one of your servants, and I have a whole speech prepared. And he, do- he starts to go home. And he doesn't, listen, he doesn't go home because he's repenting. He goes home because he doesn't want to die. And the father, after waiting and watching and scanning the horizon on the edge of his land, looking longingly as he's done every single day since his son has left, one day he catches a silhouette of his boy, knowing intimately how he carried himself, how he walked. The old man begins to run and run and run towards his son. Now, I can imagine if you're the son and you just wasted all of dad's inheritance and your dad's coming after you, you might want to run. You're like, dad's going to kill me. But that's not what dad's doing. Dad is running to pour out his love on him. The father finally catches up to him. Breathless, sweaty, tears. He grabs his son. He wraps his son. And his son tries to resist. Unworthy, guilty. He tries to get his speech out that he's prepared. You know the whole speech about how I can just live as your servant and I, you know, I left. He... The, the father will have none of it. The father is kissing him and loving him. And then he calls us, he goes, sure, sure. and he calls his servants quickly, come, bring the best. Bring the best robe, bring the best ring, bring the best shoes, put him on his feet, put a ring on his finger, put the best robe on him, and let's throw a party. Cut the wedding cake. I know, the, I know that the wedding's this weekend. Cut it now. That's what he says. Let's throw a party right now. My son is home. And Jesus is saying, oh, that's what the father's like. That's what the father is like. This is what God is like. When you 
turn. And it, the story is not even, and this is scandalous. The story, as a pastor, this is scandalous because I'm like, guys, repent. Jesus is like, just, just survive. Come back if you just want to survive. And the father is running, lavishly pouring his love out. And the end of the story, there's an older brother too. And the older brother doesn't want to go into the party because he's super, super resentful. And he's like, what the heck? He gets a party? I did nothing wrong. I don't get a party. Like, I can't believe this stupid brother of mine gets a party after wasting all of dad's money. And so he's outside resentful, and the father leaves the party. And he goes out to his son. Jesus is saying, the father's like this. And the, by the way, the story ends right there because Jesus is telling it to the Pharisees. He's saying, this, the father's going after you as well. See, the father goes after people that are broken and smelly and have wasted everything. And the father goes after those resentful religious people that are like, I can't believe like, this person in my community group keeps repenting. I know what they've done. You know, how, you know what I've been doing? Like trying to do all the Bible thing, doing the 30 minutes a day thing. Like I've been doing that. Nothing coming my way at all. Nothing. This person's up for crying. All the pastors are around them. No, no, no. I knew that. I'm not doing that. They're resentful. They're resentful people. The father goes after resentful people too. He's like, everything I, ha- everything I have is yours. You've always been with me. I love you. Come inside the party. Come and party. Your, your brother was lost and now is found. He's dead and now he's alive. The, the, Jesus is like, the father is like that. He's not malicious, he's not capricious, he's not vengeful or resentful. He is ecstatic, forgiving, generous, honoring, extraordinary. And what the Holy Spirit does is he puts the cry into our heart that we, that is now our Father. That is our Father. That is our poppy. And the word cry in Romans, he puts the the Spirit in us, causes us to cry out. This word means cry aloud. This word means to shriek or to scream like this was vocal and violent and unmistakable. It could be ascribed to those moments of religious fervor and revival when restraints and inhibitions are broken up and the inner life is expressed. It's those moments where you like just can't contain it. You're like, God loves me. Like, the Father loves me. He's poured himself out on me. Like, his life is in me. He's forgiven me. One translator says, that in using this verb, Paul is stressing that our awareness of God as Father comes not from relation or rational consideration, nor from external testimony alone, but from a truth internally, deeply felt, and intensely experienced. This is what I love about the Spirit. The Spirit can do what I cannot do. I am not a hype man at all. I'm like the opposite of a hype man. I'm like the worst hype man. I can't get up here. I'm like, God loves you. And I'm hyping it up. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it's the speaker. I can't believe it. Like, and that's not me. The Spirit does all of that. The Spirit says, the Father loves you. Jesus is your Lord. He's di-. The Spirit does all of that. See, what the Spirit does is give us an identity that we are beloved children. That's not something I can teach other than to say that that's what the Spirit does. So Henry Nouwen would say it like this. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite writers, would say, the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? How am I going to let myself be loved by God? And he also wrote to, a, he actually wrote a whole book to a skeptic friend of his. He said this to a skeptic friend. He said, dear friend, being the beloved is the origin and the fulfillment of the life of the Spirit. 
being the beloved is the origin and the fulfillment of life of the spirit. The spiritual life, the life of the spirit coming upon us. This is, this is us understanding that we are the beloved of God. But this is so hard to believe. I'm not going to lie. This is hard to believe. This is very hard to receive. One writer says about this, why it's so hard. He says, within the charismatic renewal today, there is a good deal more talk about spiritual gifts than exercise of them. More discussion about the power of the Spirit than actual experience of it. One of the main reasons for that is most people just do not have the confidence that God has accepted them and loves them just as they are His children and therefore will not let them be led astray by what is fleshly or demonic, but will give them all that he has promised, his robe, his ring, his shoes. This confidence will not be created by a repeated acts of laying on of hands, but only by an awareness of the Spirit's cry of Abba at the creative and motivating centers of our lives. This is what releases from paralyzing fear of God and man that grips so many. And it is not a technique that we can master, but a sovereign work of the Spirit which must liberate us. We, this, is, this is what we need. We need God's Spirit just to wait on God's Spirit and allow the love of God to be poured out on us. I mean, what if the Christian life was actually just about this? What if it was about living in step with the Spirit, or walking in the Spirit, or sowing in the Spirit. And what that meant is we stay in this, in this pocket of like being the beloved of God, staying in this moment of like, I don't want to grieve the Spirit. I don't want to quench the Spirit. So I'll receive from the Spirit everything the Father wants to give me, and I want to be led by the Spirit. So anything that the, the Spirit is leading me to do, I will do. See, this I think, this is where the fear comes in. If we're led by the Spirit of God, what will happen? And I will say it again, I don't know what will happen. But I imagine it's way better than what you're doing right now. Like way better. But we have to stay in step with the Spirit. I would venture to say that a lot of us, we know we have the Spirit. And we hear the Spirit. We hear God speaking. But what we've done is we've taken the still, small voice, the gentle voice of God in us, and we've told it to shut up. I think we do this in all kinds of different ways. A, a, a really close, one of my best pastor friends and I, we, we, have this, we joke around a lot around how Christians, what Christians say when they're, when, they're, when they're trying to watch something or listen to something that's cultural, but it's, but it's not, it's, it's explicit. And what we hear Christians say all the time is like, oh my gosh, I'm really trying to get through that. Like, I'm, tr I'm really trying to watch Game of Thrones. I'm just trying to get through it. It's so hard. It's just so much violence and nudity. I'm just trying to get through it. And, or I'm trying to get through this album. It's like, I'm trying to get through this series. I'm just, you know, it's 24. I'm just trying to, so an hour long. I'm just trying to get through it, man. And we, and we kind of laugh. We hear Christians say this a lot. And it's like, what you're really saying is that I know I'm grieving the spirit, but I'm trying to tell the spirit to shut up for 60 minutes while I do this thing that makes me really culturally relevant and, like, give me something to talk about in my work. I know it's nasty. I know it's disgusting. I know the spirit of God in me is like, eh. But you know what? I'm just trying to get through it. Like, spirit, just hang on. 60 seconds, 60 minutes. That's all I ask, spirit. And we do this in all kinds of ways. We do this, this thing where we, where, where we know in our, in our inner being that what we're about to step into is wrong, and we, say, Shh, we just say, shut up. Not now. Come back later. And what we do is we get a hard heart. 
And the, the scriptures, Paul used the language of quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit or resisting the Spirit. I think the Christian life is actually about not doing those. I don't think it's thou shalt not, whatever. Thou I think it's just like you honestly listening to the Spirit and going, does this grieve you? Stepping out in faith that feels a lot like risk sometimes and staying in this place that if anything disrupts the, that, like staying in step with the Spirit, if anything cuts us off from the flow of the Spirit or grieves that or resists that, we begin to say that I won't do that any longer. And I, and I wanted to say this, and I wanted to say this this morning, but I didn't, but I'll say it right now. I know that there are, might be a few of you that really long for the Spirit of God to do a work in our city and through our church that is like on like the precipice of being historic, not for anyone's glory, but for his Christ's glory alone. And you want the Spirit of God to be poured out so bad. What I'm going to ask you to do, for those of you that's resonating with you, maybe it's like just one of you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to like, what does it look like to prepare your life from Sunday, from right now to next Sunday? What does it look like for you to prepare your life for that to happen? making room for the Spirit in your own life. Maybe God's calling you to give something up, fast something, or to pray at certain hours or certain, just whatever it is. Like, I just don't want to like, oh, God, do that thing. I don't want to think about it again until next Sunday. I hope the pastors are really praying or something like that. The staff is doing something. Like, you would get involved in that way, that you would begin to prepare for that. This, this is what the Spirit wants to do. Now, as we end... I want to wait on the Spirit. I want to wait on the Spirit, and then I, I want to ask the Spirit to mediate the love of the Father to us and show us ways that we have denied that or shut that off or believed other lies. And so if you would, would you stand with me as we, as we end?